So today is the beginning of Advent, and I thought it would be appropriate to have some readings from Scripture that were particularly seasonal and cheery. So we're going to begin in Isaiah 45, and if you detected sarcasm in my voice, you're awake. So Isaiah 45, we'll start there, verses 15 to 17. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel the Savior. All of them, all of the idols, are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idol go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. And just continuing with that bright note, Psalm 44. End of the psalm. Because of you, we are being killed all day long. The kids are probably memorizing this verse in the back. (laughs) Because of you, we are being killed all day long and accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Rouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Notice this language of God hiding his face. For we sink down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Deuteronomy 32. Again, we're reading about God's response to Israel's idolatry. The Lord saw it and was jealous. He spurned his sons and daughters. He said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation Children in whom there is no faithfulness. They made me jealous with what is no God, provoked me with their idols, so I will make them jealous with what is no people, provoke them with a foolish nation. And then one more text, just to keep you in the right spirit. (laughs) Job 23, verses 8 to 10. If I go forward, he is not there, or backward, I cannot perceive him. On the left he hides, and I cannot behold him. I turn to the right, but I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come out like gold. Advent is a season for reflection, for penetrating reflection, for looking into what God has done in the past, what God is doing now, and what God shall do in the end. It's a season for searching reflection about what it means For God to come near to us in Israel, to come near to us in Jesus Christ, to come near to us in Pentecost. It's a reflection also about the ways in which God is coming near to us now, the ways he's breaking into our world now and into our lives now. And it's a reflection and anticipation of God breaking in at the end. It requires attention from us, disciplined attention from us. In fact, in some traditions, they refer to Advent as little Lent. Because there's a kind of concentration of your attention. So through fasting, through prayer, you begin to reflect on what God has done, is doing, and shall do. But one of the problems that presents itself when we start to think about what God has done, is doing, and shall do is that God is a God who hides. As we read this morning, God is a God who hides. What do we do with a God who hides? What do we do with a God who hides in our own lives? And how do we 
properly lean into Advent and take seriously the notion that we don't see much of what God is doing. This is, I think, a mark of our experience with God in this time before the end. Luther, Martin Luther said that God hides in three ways. He hides in providence. The way that God orders the world, the way that God structures what happens, Luther says, God does that from behind masks. The larvae of God, he called them. God hides behind these masks to order the world. And we never penetrate beyond the mask to know what God is doing. God orders the world. God provides for the world. God causes things to happen in the world. And we don't know why God is doing that. God is hidden in providence. But Luther said God is also hidden in salvation. That even when God comes among us, he comes among us as a little babe in a manger in the far-flung corner of the world. God comes to us in ways that are hidden and small and unexpected. And then not only in providence and salvation, but even within our own faith, Luther says, God is hidden. That our own faith is hidden from us. And this is, I think, something all Christians know by experience. God is hidden. And I want to I make clear before we get to the bulk of what I want to say today, that that is it's problematic in many ways because there are evils that happen in our world on grand scale and on a small scale. Evils that happen to people. Evils that happen to families. Evils that happen to persons that seem to make it clear that God is not. In fact, Luther said, if you look only at providence, you would have to conclude that either God does not exist or that God is evil. If you look only at providence, you would have to conclude either that there is no God or that the God who is is not a good God. But of course, we insist God is good. So what is it? what are we to make of all of the evil that happens in our world? Why is God hidden in those moments? Hidden in those moments. And the answer is, we don't know. That is the answer. We don't know. We do have this hope, though, that there is coming a day when he will appear. And when he appears, he's not going to so much explain where he was in those moments as be present to those moments. Now, I don't have time to, to deal with this at length, but I just want to suggest this to you, that the coming of Jesus is not so much him coming to explain himself as it is him coming to put wrongs right. He's not coming to justify himself by saying, well, I was really up to this when you thought I was up to that. He's coming to those moments. The coming of Jesus is not just a moment in time. It is the moment that happens to time. And that means that all of the evil that's happened in the world, Jesus is coming to that moment to act on it. That's our hope. Not that he's coming to explain himself, but he's coming to put wrongs right. Now, maybe it's the medicine on I'm on this morning. I don't know, but I'm more excited about it than you are. That's good news. And the evil that's happened in your life, Jesus is not coming to explain himself. He's coming to make it right. He's coming to put it right. And that's our hope. And nothing else we say as Christians makes sense if we don't have that hope. Paul says, if we have hope in this world only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If there's not a day in which this happening happens, his coming comes, then what we're doing is foolishness. 
But if he comes and if he sets wrongs right, then all that we're claiming about the goodness of God will be vindicated. Now, one of the ways we could talk about this, one of the ways that I consider talking, is to say what we do in the meantime between now and then, between this present experience of God's hiddenness and that experience of God in all his fullness, is we learn to develop habits of endurance. We learn to develop habits of endurance. We, we find ways to stay the course. One of the primary ways we find ways to stay the course is by engaging in practices like gathering for worship, reading scripture together, praying together, and taking the Lord's Supper. And at the heart of that is we find ways to learn how to be bored. Kim Fabricius says this, Blessed are the bored, for they shall see God. Now, this is not a tactic for growing a church, but it is a tactic for growing Christian character. Because there's something about the way that God works that he requires us to shift the way we engage in time. One of the reasons it's so important for churches like Sanctuary to, to pay attention to the Christian year that we move from Advent into Christmas into Epiphany toward all, toward Easter, all of these movements, Pentecost and ordinary time. The reason it's so important that we pay attention to the Christian calendar is that our God works in a different time than anything else happens in our world. Not only his way is not our, our ways and his thoughts not our thought, his time is not our time. His timing is not our timing. And it's so crucial that we learn to recognize that. And some of what's happening this morning is you're being trained to wait on the Lord. So boring sermons are also doing you good, right? right? Even if the content is worthless, just the sheer discipline of sitting for 30 or 45 minutes is doing you good. Because there's going to, and I'm, I'm saying that lightheartedly, but seriously, there's going to be a moment when you're going to need to sit with someone who's dying. And the discipline of sitting through a sermon that was dying is training, small training for that kind of gift. So we could talk about how to develop those habits of endurance, but I want to take a slightly different tack, and I want want to suggest that we think about what is the character of this God who hides? What kind of God is this who hides? And before I move into that, I want to, again, I want to make sure I press this point home. There are some evils in this world that are going to have to be made right when he comes. And some of what I'm going to say today about the God who hides does not apply to those cases. But much of what you and I experience as God's hiddenness, I'm convinced, actually comes as gift. And that's what I want to suggest to you this morning, that we think of a God who hides but never forsakes. That God is hidden, but he's not withdrawn. Jesus said, I must go away. But I will not leave you comfortless. I will not leave you as orphans. Our God hides, but he never, never forsakes us. So no matter what your experience is this morning, no matter what you've brought with you, no matter what you're experiencing in your life as it relates to God, understand that if he's hidden from you, and he is in some way hidden from you, he's not forsaking you. He's not abandoning you. Your sins have not driven him away. I think so many of us have that ingrained in our consciousness that if we sin, God withdraws. And that the hiddenness of God, our experience of the hiddenness of God, is an experience of a God who's angry with us in our sins. But I want you to hear me. God never withdraws because of our sins. Our sins cause us to withdraw from God. 
Our sins cause us to turn our face from him, but he is not changed by our sinfulness. He's not surprised by it. He's not scandalized by it. He's angry with it for our sakes, but he's in no way repelled by our sins. Think about when Jesus comes among us as God in the flesh. Is he repelled by sin? He's the friend of sinners. And he befriends you in your sinfulness. So whatever you're feeling about the hiddenness of God this morning, it's not in some way God's punishment for something you're doing or not doing. The hiddenness of God is a gift. It is a gift. It is something God is giving you to make room for something else. God hides because he's up to something in your life. He's something he's trying to create. We saw this in Isaiah 45. You are a God who hides himself, the text says. And the very next line identifies this God. God of Israel, the Savior. The God who hides is the God who's saving. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that the hiding is the way he's doing the saving. That he hides from us because that is the way in which he can work salvation into us. And all of these passages that we read come back to show that that is, in fact, what God is up to doing. So if we look again at Psalm 44, I don't have time to work this out in great detail, but in Psalm 44, where the psalmist laments about God hiding his face and says, for your sake we're killed all the day long. If you come to Romans 8, and at the end of Romans 8, everybody knows the passage, what can separate us from the love of God? Not famine, not the sword, not death, principalities. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. In all these things, we're more than conquerors. We often miss that Paul quotes from Psalm 44, right in the midst of that celebration. And what Paul quotes is that line from the psalm that says, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are led like lambs to the slaughter. And what you see Paul doing is saying, this psalm that in its original context is a lament, is an accusation, is a complaint against God. That says, God, you're asleep while we're suffering. Wake up. Come to us. We need you to intervene for us. For your sake, it's your fault that we're killed all the day long. What Paul does is says, I know that God never forsakes us. And therefore, if we're being led like lambs to the slaughter, it's for your sake. We're being allowed, we're being given space to be made like Jesus who was the lamb led to the slaughter. And so Paul takes this complaint and turns it into a celebration, turns it into praise and says, if you're hidden from us and allowing us to go to the slaughter, it's because you're allowing us to be made like Jesus. And what more could we want than that? What does Paul himself say? What does he want more than anything? I want to know him and to be made like him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul says, if God is hidden from us and I'm being led to the slaughter, it's God's way of letting me become like Jesus. And how can I not celebrate that? So who knows what God's hiddenness is in your life? Maybe he's giving you the chance to become like Jesus and to be Jesus to the people who are around you. We see the same kind of move in Paul's use of Deuteronomy 32, where we read the passage where God says, I will hide my face from them and see what their end will be. I don't have time to work it out in detail this morning, but in Romans 9 to 11, Paul begins by talking about Israel's rejection of the gospel, and he's scandalized by it. 
These are God's people. Why have they rejected the gospel? And what are we to make of that? That they've rejected the gospel and now the Gentiles have come in. And Paul has this kind of tortured reflection, trying to make sense of why they've rejected the gospel and what God is going to do. And he ends in chapter 11 by saying, the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. And he says, all I can conclude is this, that their rejection of the gospel has brought the Gentiles into the gospel so that the Gentiles can make them jealous and provoke them to repentance and bring them into the gospel. And then he draws on this passage from Deuteronomy 32, which on the face of it seems to say, I will turn my face from them and let them have their own way. Remember, he says, I will turn my face from them and see what their end will be. And if you're not careful, you'll read that as if it's God throwing up his hands and dismissing us, leaving us to our own devices, leaving us to the consequences of our own choices. But what Paul sees is that when God turns his face from us and sees what our end will be, he's not looking at the end that comes from our action. He's looking at the end that comes from his action on our behalf. And what Paul sees at the end of Romans 11 is that God is including all in disbelief, he says, so that he may include all in belief. And then celebrates and says, oh, the wisdom and the power of God. Who can see the mind of the Lord? So what Paul says is when God turns his face from us, he's not looking at the end of our actions God is brainstorming about how his actions can bring about our good in spite of our sin. So if you feel like God has abandoned you this morning, he hasn't. If you're experiencing the hiddenness of God this morning, it's because God is brainstorming, creating an end for you that will come and bring about more than you could ever ask or dare to imagine. That's what God's hiddenness means. It means he's creating an end for you that will redeem you from what you would make of yourself. That's good news. That's good news. And then Job 23. Job lamenting. I go forward and he's not there. I go backward and I cannot find him. I turn to the left and he hides. I turn to the right and I cannot see him. But I want you to think, why can't he find God? Because, as Paul prays, We need the power of the Spirit to even begin to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love that holds us in being. And what I want to suggest is if you feel like you're looking to the left and you can't find him and you look forward and you can't find him and behind and you can't find him and to the right you can't find him, it's because that love that holds you is infinite. And there is no searching it. His love is too great for you to find it like you find other things in the world. You're held up by God's own life. The Holy Spirit of God is what holds you in being. So if you're looking left and right and fore and behind and you can't find him, it's not because he's not there. Not there. It's because he's so there that he's making it possible for you to see anything else. He's so present that he's more present than you can imagine. He's so close to you. He's closer to you than you are to yourself. He's not something you can see like you see other objects in the world because he's what's making it possible for you to be an object in the world. That's good news. 
So what is the character of this, of this God? The first is, I, I want to suggest to you that this God is strange. God is strange. And that's good news. Because he's strange in his goodness. And his strangeness is nothing more than the infinite of his goodness coming to play on our lives. God is strange, but not because he's not good, but precisely because he's so good that we in our brokenness cannot conceive it, cannot respond to it properly. So when he hides, we have to trust. He's being good to us, even if I can't see it. He's not only strange, but he's also creative. He's creative. I I think sometimes we imagine the world as if everything is scripted, as if everything is predetermined, as if in eternity past, whatever that might mean, God set up everything that was going to happen, and he's kind of watching it play out. But God is living with us in our lives in real time. Never doubt that. Even if you can't make philosophical sense of it, never doubt that God is living with you in your life in real time and that God is constantly creating good out of all the choices that you make. He's infinitely creative. So whatever decision you make, he's already created new ways in which that choice can lead to repentance and lead to life. He's creative. When he turns his face from you, he's creating an end that will bring joy and life and peace. He's not only strange, he's not only strangely creative, he's also humble. I wonder how many of us think of God as humble. He is humility itself. God is willing not to be noticed. Have you ever ever been struck by the end of Matthew 25? Jesus is talking about the last judgment. We all know the passage. He says, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. Remember this passage? And they say, those on the left say, we never saw you. We never saw you. But the astonishing fact is, he then turns to those on the right and says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And they say, we never saw you hungry. We never saw you in prison. We never visited you in prison. So you see, God is hidden from the faithless and the faithful. He's hidden from both of them. They don't, neither, neither the faithful or the faithless saw him. But what does that tell us about God? I think it suggests just how humble he is. That he's willing to be present to us in the hungry. He's willing to be present to us in those who are in prison. He's willing to be present to us in what Paul calls the foolishness of preaching. He's willing to be present to us in a meal like this one. God is humble. And so much of the hiddenness of God just comes from the fact that God doesn't need to be known. God doesn't have any kind of ego that requires you to recognize him. This goes counterintuitive to so much of what we think about God. But God is humble. And one of the ways he uses his hiddenness is to teach you humility. Is to teach you how to be humble in the same kind of way. That's one of the things I love about the Christmas story and I love about Joseph. We're right to celebrate Mary and all the ways in which she models discipleship for us. But I want to be like Joseph, who's humble enough not to be a major factor in the story. 
that's like God. God is like that. He's willing to let other people be his face, his hands, his feet, his body. That's how humble he is. And then finally, and this may be scandalous for some of you, but, but I'm convinced of it. God is not only humble, he's playful. How many of you play hide and seek? I'm, I'm convinced, not now, I don't admit that. Played hide and seek, right? I, I'm convinced that we could probably categorize everyone in this room based upon how you respond to the game hide and seek, right? So we could get two large groups, those who are for the game and those who are against the game. And then we could categorize those who for the game you know, by intensity of love for it. Right? Do you tolerate the game? Is this like the passion of your life? And then we could further categorize it by which role do you like to play? Now, I'll just tell you. I'll just admit I don't know what this says to the counselors in the room, what I'm saying about myself. <laughs> Please don't tell me until after uh, the service is over. But I, did not, I, I, I was fine with playing hide and seek, but I did not like to be the seeker. I was fine with hiding, no problem with that. I wasn't afraid of hiding, but I didn't want to be the seeker. And it was really this simple for me. Because if I'm hiding, then I can only be traumatized once. But if I'm the seeker, the potential is I will be traumatized as many times as, I, as there are other people in the game, right? So my greatest fear was that instead of finding the people who were hiding, they were going to surprise me while I was looking for them, right? So I never wanted to be the seeker. I was always fine with being one who hid, right? But be that as it may, see, I revealed something about myself. I think God plays hide and seek with us. Now, there are some ways in which there are evils that happen in this world, and I don't want you to think about those as a game. I don't want you to think about those as a game. But there are other ways in which we go through seasons of our life in which it seems like our prayers fall constantly to the ground, Everything we put our hands to turns to ash. And we're wondering, what is this? Where is God now? And what I want to suggest is maybe it's because God is playing with you. Not toying with you in some kind of sadistic way, but out of love, out of the fatherly love that he has for you. It's a game. And what might happen if we lean into that game a bit? There's a wonderful novel, I don't have time to characterize all of it for you, by G.K. Chesterton called The Man Who Was Thursday. And the premise of the novel is something like this. There's a man who is a private detective. And he is trying to infiltrate an anarchist group, a council, to stop this plot to, to bomb London. And so he joins this council, and everyone on the council has a name of the day of the week. He is Thursday, the man who was Thursday, the title of the book. The leader of the council is a man named Sunday. And then, of course, everyone else on the council has a name of the day of the week. And as the novel spins out, I don't want to ruin it for any of you, but as the novel spins out, what Thursday discovers is that everyone else on the council is also a detective who's penetrated this underground group to stop the plot. So when he thinks he's about to spring the truth on Friday or Monday or Tuesday, turns out that Friday and Monday and Tuesday are also working with Scotland Yard to stop this bombing. So finally, all six of them realize all of us are detectives trying to stop Sunday from his plot to bomb London. 
And then there's this moment of realization that they have. They confront him with it, and he immediately leaps up and starts to run. And when he's running from them, they realize he's not a bomber either. He's not an anarchist either. This has all been an elaborate game in which he's drawn us in. In fact, turns out he's the detective that hired all of us in the first place. And you can see at this point the story starts to make itself clear what Chesterton is wanting to say about our relationship to Christ. And then there's this moment in which they're chasing Sunday through the streets of London. And Thursday has a realization. And he says, it's all a game of hide and seek. And one of the other detectives, who's particularly down in the mouth, says, well, it's a long game. (laughs) It may be a game, but it's a long game. And then Thursday says this. He says, listen to me, and I will tell you the secret of the whole world. It is that we have only known the back of the world. We see everything from behind, and it looks brutal. That is not a tree, but the back of a tree. That is not a cloud, but the back of a cloud. Cannot you see that everything is stooping and hiding a face? If we could only get around in front. Now, what I want to suggest to you is that the hiddenness of God is a hiddenness that hides everything else around us. And that our experience before the end is this experience. We never see anything face to face. Not a cloud, not a tree, not a neighbor, not an enemy, not a spouse, not a child. We've yet to see anything face to face. And part of this game of hide-and-seek is to train us to know that and to recognize that in this time before the end, sometimes the best we can do is lean into the game and take delight in a God who loves us enough to teach us about hide-and-seek. Because he's a God who hides himself, so we never have to hide. He hides, but we never have to hide. And he's a God who's teaching us how to seek because there's something about being human that is only accomplished, is only brought to fulfillment in seeking. And he trains us about that seeking. I want you to stand with me. When I read this about seeing everything from the back, I, of course, thought of Moses. You remember his prayer to God? I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. And what does God say to him? No one can see me and live. No one can see me and live. I'm too strange. I'm too humble. I'm too creative for you to see me and live. But I'll hide you in this rock. And I'll pass you by with my hand covering you. And I'll say my name. I'll let you see the glory as I pass you. Do you remember what happens to Moses when he comes down from the mountain? His face is glowing. What I wanted to tell you this morning is that in this life before the end, you're never going to see the face of God. He's going to hide from you and keep hiding from you and keep hiding from you. But if you lean into the game in the right way, He will make your face glow. And every time you turn to your neighbor, 
Every time you turn to your spouse or your children, your face can grow. And this God who is humble will let you be his presence to them. And that's what he wants after all anyway. His glory is our being glorified. His happiness is our coming into the happiness that is only possible when we're made like him. When we come to this table today, we're coming to the table of God who's humble and creative and playful. And in bread and wine, he's going to give himself to us. We're not going to see his face. But if we lean in the right way, we can become his body. And in the midst of this world in which everyone experiences the hiddenness of God, we can be the presence of God. And what more would we want than that? Holy Spirit, as we come today to this table, to this bread and this wine, awaken faith in us. Faith that allows ourselves to be grasped even when we can't grasp you. Holy Spirit, make this bread the body of Jesus so that as we partake, as we receive it, we take on your character. And as we receive this blood, as we receive this wine, make it the blood of Jesus for us so that we take on his character. Let our faces shine that we can be the presence of the hidden God. Let's confess the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ shall come again. Come and receive the gifts of the Lord this morning.